This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hi, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. How you doing, Max? I'm good, Joris. How you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. I just got me some Chef Doodler pens. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Yeah, the campaign's <laughs> live and running. Although by the time yeah. this airs, it might be over. But yeah, sugar 3D yeah. pens. Chef yeah. Doodler. <laughs> uh, was it? Was it? Ner- were you nervous the second time around? Because you did this first time with it. Uh, uh, fourth. The, this is actually the, the pen. F- yeah. yeah, that's true. But this is the fourth time. But this is the second time we've done something of that nature where we're like bringing out a completely new ish concept like that. So yeah, you know, I was worried, but people seem to like it, and uh, we're getting a very good response. But okay, we're okay. here to talk about additive manufacturing and have fun. Who is on the three D pod today? Well, today we've got Zach Detweiler on the 3D pod. He is uh, the VP of technology at Velo 3D. Used to be the VP of process engineering. He started, uh, you know, he's got a bit of a meandering kind of path to to getting where he is because he started uh, at one point, well, as a a chemist first off. So that's something we we don't really see uh, uh, a lot. And then he was also an electron microscopist, uh, which could be helpful. Uh, you know, the, and then later on he worked at the Princeton, he worked for an alloys company, a director of research at Canium Alloys. So that seems much more relevant. And then I uh, was an entrepreneur in Revidence before joining Vela VP of process engineering. So, and he's now in charge of, uh, yeah, the, the VP of technology of Vela 3D. Of course, the company is trying to make its powder bed fusion variant, you know, much more reliable, much more repeatable and scalable, uh, worldwide. So that's, uh, yeah, so it's a pleasure to have you here uh, today, Zach. Yeah, pleasure to join you guys. I appreciate you going through my LinkedIn history as well. <laughs> I know, I was trying to find something because it said at one point you were like starting, you started off like uh, you were like separating lactic acid and you were a lab waste manager. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, w- w- when you're early on looking for jobs coming out of grad school, you're, you're listing yeah. all the things. So those are all the things that I did when I was in grad school, uh, electronic okay, okay. managing all that great stuff. So, yep. So how did you end up going from like chemistry and these kind of chemical research kind of things? How did you end up where you are now and kind of very much more, well, kind of away from chemistry kind of role? Yeah, you know, it's it's a great question. And uh, actually, you know, just looking back on chemistry, I think there's a misperception on what the scope of chemistry actually is. And I, I learned it as I was coming along too that what all the subdisciplines are. And I don't know how everyone ends up in research science, especially how they end up in metal additive manufacturing. But for me, uh, really early on, I had the opportunity to kind of have a clarity of role. Uh, I wanted to be a research scientist and had the opportunity to do that. My, my high school actually forced me to do that. Uh, and just getting into what I wanted to do with my career, it was all about wanting to discover new things. So I think that's the, the common thread that connects chemistry with additive at this point. If it's short, how how did they how did your high school force you into being a research scientist, and then how do we repeat that? Yeah, <laughs> like a million uh, times. Honestly, yeah, it was uh, it's it was a really cool experience, and and I would I definitely tie my career back to that one week experience that they uh, forced me to go through. They required us to do some sort of uh, internship or service or shadow a career opportunity. Right. And uh, I got connected with a research scientist at the National High Magnetic Field Laboratory in uh, Tallahassee, Florida. He was a physicist uh, that was a family connection of mine. My dad went to college with him and this guy ended up being a PhD in physics and went down there for a week. And I had always kind of enjoyed chemistry. I'd enjoyed physics as classes, 
but it never had that connection to me on what could I do with a career. I didn't have anybody in my family. I didn't have anybody. Right, my dad was a construction worker, uh, and I kind of viewed that as what a job would look like. That one week opportunity gave me the chance to see somebody doing the sort of work that you would do with a chemistry degree, with a physics degree. And uh, it was a light bulb for me. So I had the opportunity to go down there and see what that was like. And I came back and it was like, oh, I'm pivoting on a dime. That's I want to go do that. I don't know if I want to do physics in particular, but and that's what uh, right, but- I've rattled around now to, uh, to, to metals at this point, chemistry of materials. Very cool. That's cool. That's cool. The thing, of course, everybody kind of tends to think like once you invent like a technology, uh, you know, that's that's the hard bit. And then, and then, you know, you just sit back, right? So, so you know, if we look let at the money uh, roll Fusion, in, yeah, let the money roll in and just make enough of them as you can. But, 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 I think at a company like Bell, you're looking at a very complicated machine, and there's a lot going on in that machine, uh, mechanically, electromechanically, uh, physics of it. You know, how hard is that to to master all of those things? Uh, yeah, it's a it's a great point. Anytime you think you have a great uh, mousetrap, right? You got to go make the mousetrap. You got to go make the uh, sugar pen, right? And I'm sure the idea was there from the beginning, but getting that thing to the point where it's a product on Kickstarter is, is no small feat. So I definitely <laughs> applaud that effort. Uh, and similar here, right? When we first started at Velo, it was the idea that we're just going to do some processing, point the laser at the right spot and change how it schedules what it does. And that'll be enough to totally change what's capable on a metal 3D printer. And as we started getting into it in our history, long before I was here, right, it became evident that uh, it's not going to be just point the laser here because this piece of hardware has to allow for the laser to do the things it needs to do. Uh, hence, developing technology in-house like a non-contact recoder so that we can allow parts as we lay them to protrude from the bed in a way that nobody else can when they use a solid or soft blade. Making all of that dance together is certainly not the sort of thing that uh, I think up front would have been a very VCable model, but they've done a very good job throughout our history of getting to the point where we've we've made things, we've set milestones for ourselves, and we've done some pretty incredible things. I'm super impressed by what we've been able to do historically and by the team around us and what we continue to be able to do as we go forward. And so just looking at laser powder diffusion, a little bit back to basics, you know, what are the variables and what's hard to control there? Uh, <laughs> great question. Good question, right? <laughs> it's a very big question. And, you know, when I, when I, if, if we were to say, all right, well, if you want to know what are the variables, we can go into our flow software and I can tell you that there are uh, on the order of 200 plus variables that we can c- control just via how we schedule the laser and point it around uh, at the bed itself. So just in and of itself, there's countless combinations that you can do on how you laze. Right. But beyond that, it's how thick do you laze? Uh, how much power do you use? These are the most common things. How much power do you use for the laser? How much, uh, where do you point it for how long? How quickly uh, do you scan? How far apart do these scans take? How big of an area are you scanning at a time? Uh, yeah, it, it gets multivariate way too quickly, and, and there's just no way to fully explore the space. Uh, so you try to balance it across uh, process engineering and physics based understanding of what's going on within the tool. And the team here is exceptional at doing that okay so so controlling these many very many variables are difficult but but and, and mapping them out and finding out how because there's like there's lots of reactions between them right there's the there, there's there's the and the reaction between them can be quite complex as well right absolutely yeah and and it's not just a it's not just where you point the lasers it's uh you know all the hardware revs all the software revs there's a whole process control uh, that needs to take place from what powder you put in the tool to what heat treat you do after it comes out of the tool and uh, everything in between that is uh, 
something that we need to control, keep track of, and understand. You know, and, and how do you tackle that from an engineering perspective? Because it would seem, do, do you, how do you tackle like a multivariate process like that? Do you do, how do you actually begin to even control that kind of stuff and map that out and then know where to begin and know where you want to go? Very much dependent on what your aim is. Uh, and when you have a map that big, Exploring it for the sake of exploring it is something that you don't have the luxury of doing as a business. So oftentimes you need to get together with your customers very intimately and have good relationships to say, hey, what do you need us to do? And then you try to map out how you get there effectively and confidently and reproducibly. And that's what we do day in, day out. We get requests from customers to do this thing. And then we say, all right, well, how do we understand it? How do we get there? And what do we need to be able to build upon to get to there uh, and, and build on solid ground every, every step of the way? Who are, who are you seeing as your customer base now? From, I mean, not specific customers, but as like uh, what industries, I guess, are you seeing coming in and using this the most right now? Yeah, we continue to expand what the uh, marketplace looks like. And a lot of that is dependent on our upfront, right? What our kind of carve out was based on was the ability to make geometries we could no one else could make and that gave us a lot of uh, ability to penetrate into launch companies still a very strong sector for us uh, but moving into a lot more diverse markets at this point so aerospace is one that we're really looking at uh, it's where we've gotten a lot of traction over in europe uh, we're also looking into automotive manufacturing and then uh, oil and gas as well. And kind of what we say internally are the things that differentiate us or are very strong attributes of the technology we've de developed so far are anytime you have internal flow channels, uh, we excel at being able to print that. Uh, so any application where you can imagine there's some internal flow of a part that you just can't access with traditional machining, right? Additive is the way to make it. And Velo is excellent at making internal smooth geometries without supports or even smoother than uh, those that can make it otherwise. When you, when you say internal flow, I, I always think of, of tooling. Um, like, are you seeing a lot of people using this to create tooling inserts and stuff of that nature or um, on the industrial side? Yeah, the, 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 the automotive industry right now has quite a bit of interest in what we do. Uh, we have a few tools placed at this point in order to make parts for the tooling industry. So high pressure die casting, internal flow channels, being able to do conformal cooling on those die ch dies is uh, something that they're very interested in. Like if you look at these flow things, I love this flow stuff because it's all high value. It's difficult to machine, right? And it's also parts that, that, that really matter to the overall performance of the system they're in, right? So is that, is that, is that a critical thing as well that you're, you're looking at this, this through a lens of saying, how can we be the tip of the spear? How can we really make the most expensive, most critical component of that system? It is part of the whole package, right? Uh, for for like the automotive industry, for instance, right? Being uh, very tip of the spear, being very technologically advanced is great, but you've got to balance that against cost, uh, right? So being able to find materials, new materials, generate those uh, prints in a material that is relatively affordable, right? I think an L718 is a little bit more expensive than M300, and both of those are way cheaper than GRCOP42, so you got to be pretty selective about the material that you're putting into a given application on top of being able to print high quality. So for, for every one of these industries and for every one of these customers, there's a little bit of a different need. And so being very connected to your customer, being very uh, willing to hear what they need and trying to solve that problem on a case-by-case -case basis is what we spend a lot of our time doing. 
Yeah, and automotive, though, that's the one thing that, that jumps out to me when we were talking about it. Like, traditionally, we just haven't been able to match our pricing and stuff like that. Are you, are you changed that, or is it the, 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 the components you're focus on, focusing on have changed, or is it still just tooling and the stuff that, that makes sense or has always made sense? Yeah, and in, in that case, it's, it's tooling makes sense, right? As long as you can make a part at a similar uh, price, or even if it's more expensive, you can make that part last longer. Uh, that's the advantage there. So it's uh, it's not making doors, it's not making frames, it's making the parts that make the parts. Okay, okay, that makes a lot more sense. And you know, Velo's unique approach has been to to kind of go segment by segment and not to kind of do a shotgun approach, like yeah, let's talk to everyone. You know, is that still the case, or are you just like kind of adding one more vertical, one more application, one by one, or or what's the, or have you really changed to doing more of a scattershot type of approach? Uh, at this point, it's still been pretty targeted, uh, trying to find the industries that make sense, right? We're not going out and trying to make biomedical devices at this point, for instance. Uh, so definitely trying to marry up the idea of that we've had all along is that what we truly see is the power of what we're doing is to solve production problems. Uh, we're not trying to do academic work. We're not trying to, uh, you know, invent a new widget, right? We're trying to get into industries and applications where this can really solve difficult problems uh, in large volumes and make this a competitive on strategic opportunities for large-scale production. Okay, so then machine-wise, I mean, okay, if that's the goal, then machine-wise, you know, what are you targeting? Because you've got, you started with a relatively small machine, now you're making all these much, much bigger systems. You know, are you, do you want to have like a family of systems out there as a company, or do you want like one really humongous system? What's, what's the strategy on that? Like, you know, on, on that kind of approach? Or do you want like a smaller system to qualify parts and a really big one to do production? Or, or how do you see that happening? Yeah, uh, we got our foothold with a smaller printer, the Sapphire. Uh, and the, one of the really big targets that we had when we released that particular tool was the ability and the goal of having high repeatability. And so being able to have that tool out there and somebody can work on that tool, uh, entry into that tool and get an idea of what parts they're going to be able to print, how they're going to print it. Uh, but then one of the things that we find and that we've heard a lot of feedback on is that throughout the additive industry, metal parts printed on one model of tool, and then you go to the same model of tool at somebody else's facility and you print that same part, you get a totally different result. Sapphire was designed in mind to uh, not have that particular issue. So we've designed and, and controlled the process in a way that tool-to-tool repeatability is quite high. We've actually got a pretty cool case uh, for a customer in particular that tested a specific part on four Velo systems, just uh, blind, went to four different manufacturers, got that same part printed, uh, did the same thing on a legacy printer. And the variation between the Velo part was within a few percent and much, much greater variation, tens of percent different on the legacy system, right? And that's just something that they took a print, took it there and printed it. So repeatability is a huge thing for us, uh, but scale wise is, is another thing, right? And the way you get cost down on a lot of these systems is printing more of them at a time. And then there's just access to larger parts. And there's a lot of customers coming to us asking about larger parts as well. Uh, and that's the XC has actually had some great success for us. Uh, and one of the main aspects of that there is just raw size. Okay. okay. And that's for like things like combustion chambers, that kind of like turbo machinery, those kind of parts and stuff like that, or? Yeah, so a lot of uh, yeah combustion chambers on the XC. Uh, we've got a 1MZ variant for both the uh, Sapphire and the XC now. Uh, and again, launch devices for both of those applications are very common. 
are you seeing people fill the whole build chamber and print it day in, day out, kind of that kind of thing? Because, like, for example, in the first year, you know, millions of dental crowns were made basically in one layer, right? They just, they didn't stack components for a very long time. Uh, you know, whereas some orthopedic cups and stuff, there were free flow stacked in, in the EB machines, right? So, you know, what are you seeing? Are you seeing people really fill the thing and really use this thing, like, you know, day in, day out, like a true production tool? Yeah, so some of our customers are definitely doing that, right? Uh, realizing 70 plus percent utilization on the tool, green time to green time, pulling parts out of the tool, right? So we do have customers that are at that point. Uh, and from a fill volume, it's it's highly dependent on the customer themselves. So what, what we do find, though, is that as soon as you offer a bigger size, uh, somebody comes along to fill that size and ask for something a little bit bigger uh, almost immediately. So that, yeah, very much so even with the XC, right? The reason we go to 1MZ pretty quickly after releasing the XC, somebody wants bigger. And uh, always getting asked about that. They yeah, always want bigger. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but but that's dangerous. I mean, I've seen that happen. You guys are a bit bigger now. You're publicly traded, all this stuff. But still, I've seen that happen a lot. There where people are kind of being doing customer led kind of innovation, and then end up building something just for a very few people, or maybe that's something that that doesn't really meet demand apart from these very few exotic customers. How do you kind of, on the one hand, listen to customers and develop the right machine, and know that 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 whole thing is viable? Yeah, and right, that's what the product functionality within an organization comes in and does is listens to all these customers and makes sense of it, compares and contrasts it, and then triages it with the resources that we have. So we have we have uh, we have that function internally that is helping us guide what's the next thing for us to really focus on. And and if we look at the, that kind of that, that kind of thing, I mean, okay, so you've got like a now. Uh, uh you know, a family of machines, if you will, that also has like kind of like there's a, a maintenance burden there because you guys have to make now all of a sudden all these different, you know, tools and all these different software for all these different machines. You have to keep them afloat for years. Is, is that also a risk that you keep making more machines and that kind of burdens your organization disproportionately? Or It definitely is a risk that you would run into as an organization. Uh, and one of the reasons we've kept it to the four tool family that we have now, uh, four tools being the Sapphire 1MZ, Sapphire, XC and the XC1MZ, right? Uh, trying to keep as homogenous and as scalable of a family as, as possible is definitely of interest to us. One of the great things that we have between the Sapphire and the XC is that if you can print something on a Sapphire, the way we've set up an XC is you're going to go be able to print it on an XC as well. Uh, so processes are transferable between all of the four tools. And that's the way that we're going to uh, continue to move forward with any sort of development that we do is cross-family functionality. We don't want to make uh, Sapphire 1MZ uniquely capable of printing a material that none of our other families can print uh, without having to optimize for those different printers, right? So the way we bring up tools, the way we manufacture them and qualify them allows for that. If we're looking at uh, this kind of stuff, then then at the same time, like, okay, so how do you get this repeatability stuff to actually work? I mean, we all know it's, well, first of all, what are the problems? I mean, like, if we're looking at run-to-run differences on the machine or run-to-run differences of the same, well, a different model of the same machine, that kind of thing, you know, what are the problems that we have encountered? Because there are different issues, right? There are different issues at different places in the print bed. There are different issues with just con- machine control and stuff like that. They're different, but they're, traditionally, this has been a really big problem for industry. So first of all, like, like you know, what are the issues that we traditionally have, have, have found here? So one of the issues that I'll say we run into, depending on what the process is, is cross build plate uniformity. And one of the ways that we've addressed that is increasing the flow just in general across the powder bed or above the powder bed, as well as making it more uniform so that we can get a wider process window. 
and then parking your process in such a way that when you have a little bit of variation across the build plate or from location to location, uh, tool to tool, that the process window is wide enough that it's not impacting the final pr uh, product performance. And is that just because you have more control? You, you take more measurements you know, of what you're doing? Or how, how do you actually make this happen? So a lot of that will be dictated by the design of the instrument, the design of the tool. So designing it so that flow is reproducible, so that uh, the way that lasers point and focus and are qualified and also we, we do a tool health checklist so that we calibrate it. Uh, how you do calibration is largely in, influential on how reproducible these are. So making sure that you are bringing tools up in the same way, that you're qualifying them in the same way, and that when you do calibrations, you're doing them often enough that laser health is behaving the way you expect it, that you're not printing parts in a state that's unknown for too long. Uh, and then knowing when you have something that's falling out of spec, how to fix it. Uh, so we have a whole suite of tool health checklists that allows us to understand laser health, uh, tool health, and bring these things into specification and control the process as effectively as possible. Was there anything from, from all of that, that that was surprising to you guys as an organization that it had a bigger impact than you were expecting, an outsized impact? But I mean, clearly, I assume you solved it, but that uh, was was troubling you guys for some time? Uh, historically, yeah. I can speak less to, but I know coming in, uh, some of the things that I was surprised to find out were just uh, flow across a bed was so influential on performance, right? Being able to remove the soot effectively. Uh, one of the major efforts, and actually recently we've announced uh, a partnership with this company called PhysicsX, which is a physics-based artificial intelligence company that basically does physics calculations on, and for our purposes, for flow, a gas flow was one of the main ways that we employed them previously. We generate soot when you're lasing. There's no way around it. Uh, the, the best thing to do is make sure that it doesn't contaminate your optics and that it gets out of the way as quickly as possible so that even when it's not contaminating the optics, it's not contaminating the atmosphere. So if you laze through soot that you're generating, uh, you can actually totally change the way that your beam interacts with the material. And there are effects of that that we have to control for, that we have to make sure we remove from the possibility of happening. Uh, and and if, we, if we're not doing that effectively, historically, right, that's something that can totally impact the print quality in such a way that you, you totally change the results. Okay. If we're talking about a one laser machine, totally get it. Yo, I get to under control it. But when we're talking about like eight lasers and stuff like that, I would think this would become like almost unmanageably difficult to do. Yeah, fortunately, we have a really capable uh, preprint software team that under and and on a process side of things, we work very intimately with them to help them understand what we're seeing and what physically we need the lasers to be able to do, the system to be able to do, how to schedule the lasers such that they're efficient but also not interacting with each other, and uh, you know all of that. Luckily, we have in house. We have the ability to slice print, and then uh, report out the tool health as well, uh, all under one umbrella. And that's what, that's really what flow process, uh, you know, the actual tool itself, Sapphire family, and then Assure allows us to do is say, all right, you can give us a part. We'll slice it how the tool needs to slice it to be both efficient and reproducible. It'll print reliably, and we'll tell you how reliably it printed uh, in the form of Assure at the end of the day. So that having that whole set of three uh, together, end-to-end -end solution, really enables customers to make the parts they're trying to make and understand how good of a job the t the, that particular print did on a print-in, print-out basis.
I think that, that is that the secret sauce really, or is that one of the secret sauce things? Is just because like a lot of people like expect like a secret sauce to have a really special name or something called like some kind of gizmo or whatever. And here we're talking about a systems integration challenge where if you solve it correctly, you're able to just have better performance. You know, and you're saying the solution to that is a whole bunch of different people in our organization working on a whole bunch of different tools. And is that really the secret sauce of Vela or one of the secret sauce, if you will? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely taking the approach of looking at what, what, is, what is our core competency as a business? It's, uh, is, it, is it printing? Is it making printers? Uh, and really know the, the core competency that we want to get is to enable people to make parts that they can't make otherwise. And when you approach it from that perspective, the things that you realize you have to be able to do are, are perhaps a, a wider footprint than uh, might be present on in other organizations. And, and the ability that you have to impact the final outcome is a longer chain in the process and therefore more control. And still, like if you're looking at it, okay, more control is great, but then you're talking about this post-processing stuff. Well, you know, do you, how far do you want to move into like hip and, and, and understanding what happens to the part when it comes out of the printer and understanding what, you know, what happens when you distress it and stuff like that. And do you want to make tools for that part as well? Or do you see that as being something like that's totally other people's kind of, uh, kind of area? Yeah, uh, I think as much as we can, we'd like to plug in with the existing supply chain to be scalable, right? The more you have to invent, the more difficult it is to actually make this thing available to a wide range of people. And for that reason, we're not getting into the game of designing rocket engines, right? Because we think there are companies out there that are much better at that than we are. But at the end of the day, they're going to output a CAD that needs to come into the printer, right? Uh, and until we have a solution that allows us to control the lasers in the way that we need to, to make a really high quality part, we're going to control that aspect of the, of the pipeline. Similarly, on the back end of it, uh, we don't see a strong industry need for more heat treaters. There's plenty of assets out there that already exist for hip heat treat that we can, as long as what's coming out of the printers is reproducible and we understand what heat treat it needs to go through to get the products that you need at the end of the day to perform the way they are intended, right? we're, we're happy to let that uh, uh, be the purview of a heat treater. Right? I, don't, I don't think we're going to get better at that in addition to making 3D printers uh, than what already exists. It's, it's interesting that like, like you guys are very Silicon Valley-ish, if you will. You start as a software company, right? They kind of like had to make hardware, kind of. Like, uh, you know, and you're very Silicon Valley based and very Silicon Valley in the way that you solve problems, like more of a software integrated thing. But at the same time, Silicon Valley is a place where people are really expensive, but you're supposed to be on the cutting edge. Does it make sense to be there and to have that kind of heritage as a kind of a basically a hardware company that just delivers a technology solution? Or, or is it still is it too expensive a place to do business now? It is absolutely core to who we are as an organization where we are. Uh, we have pulled largely from a semiconductor industry that's in the area to be able to do the things we're doing, right? Be able to marry software and hardware together. We've been very fortunate to be where we are. Uh, and it's, it's hard to imagine that leaving this area would be beneficial to the things that we still need to do. Uh, maybe 10, 20 years from now, do we have to have the manufacturing facility in place where square footage is hundreds of dollars per square foot? Uh, I don't know. Uh, thankfully, that's not my decision to make. But from a technological standpoint, what we still need to and want to accomplish going forward, yeah, being where we're at is, is a huge boon to who we are as an organization. Do you think that that like, look, makes you look at problems in a different way than if you're from another place? Like, you know, would you be more hardware oriented if you were somewhere else, for example? Or what do you think the unique, the unique Silicon Valley-esque way of looking at these things uh, is? That's a great question. And I don't have a great insight into where 
Other, otherwise, you might be more bent on hardware development. I, I think that happens a lot in the Valley, especially in the context of, hey, this thing doesn't work. What's the carte blanche? What would we do from first principles that would land us at a spot where we want to go? I think that's very much born out of this area. The, the idea that we can do whatever physically makes sense, that you know, we can build it. We're not going to be limited by what, what it's, what's capable of being built. We're going to be largely limited by what's physically real, what's possible. And I, I, I think that's one of the things that we get from this area, uh, from the companies that we've been able to pull from and from the ability to say, hey, uh, in addition to that, we're going to have to be able to marry that up to something that's reproducible. And right, the, uh, the idea of being able to do fab from place to place and have a certain quality expectation, right? that's built into our DNA from people coming out of that industry as well, uh, semiconductor industry. But if we're looking at semiconductors, the, the tolerances, the the throughput and all the stuff, that, that just that still makes us look kind of like, you know, kindergarten-esque like compared to what they're used to. And is that golf, does that propel you further? Or is it maybe, you know, uh, does that really make you work harder every day because you know what's possible? Or Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, and, and one of the things there is, right, traction, right? If you get big enough traction, if you have the traction that the semiconductor industry has, right, uh, tolerances are out the window. You, you can do whatever you need to do, right? They've had decades and decades of a lot of funding pumping into that because of the value of that and right trying to tap into that market value for what we're doing trying to be able to realize the true potential of scaling up am to be fast and competitive with casting there are there are applications right now where we think we're going to be quite competitive with casting and there are people looking at our large format tools to say hey if you get to this threshold that we're targeting, right? Throughput is a huge effort of ours at the, at the moment, right? One of those product management thing goals is, uh, can we get the higher throughput? Because it, it unlocks a lot of markets that we don't currently have, a lot of big markets that we're going after. And, and my team in particular is, is looking at how do we make these printers print faster, but also retain the high quality that we're known for, that we expect coming out of these, these printers. And yeah, I think uh, if we get to these larger markets, it's It'll be very what good. What do you, what do you, when you talk about, I mean, obviously the speed is one of the keys to this, to compete against like traditional casting. How much faster can you create that casting than the traditional method? You know, maybe two to four weeks to make a traditional casting. So I'm curious if this is like hours, days. Uh, yeah. So some of the large parts that we make on the printers, you know, we, we print things that take up to 10 days to make. Uh, but one of the beautiful things about this is you don't have to iterate on it. Uh, or if you need to iterate on it, you don't have to make new casting. And right, the casting process in particular, right, you got to make a mold that takes some amount of time. You got to design that mold. You got to make that mold that takes some amount of time. You got to cast it. You got to see how it turned out. And if in that whole chain of processes you don't like what you got, you got to go back to the beginning of it, which can really right. stretch out the actual development timeline. And right, obviously that's where additive got its foothold in many industries as a prototyping capability. As you get to the point where you're finding good applications and you're getting quicker and quicker at printing or uh you know the material you can provide is of a higher quality than what casting is able to provide right you start eating some of those applications yeah that's that's where we're going right now is trying to trying to look at the world of subtractive manufacturing where do we actually have a strong competitive edge uh, and where where do we need to improve a little bit in order to really start eating that market too Okay, and then, and do you look that through the prism of like you know do you are you looking really at like okay let's look at Inconel because Inconel is what we know or are you looking basically at a blank slate like okay let's just look at all the metals and see where we can where we can end up? 
Yeah, uh, from from a from a personal standpoint, I love looking at uh, the shiny bright objects. Uh, anytime we, anytime somebody asks for a new material, I I love to look at it uh, and say, yes, we can do it. I can't wait to do it. Uh, there's so much opportunity for the organization to do all of these things, but we're definitely trying to be focused on what are the largest markets. What are the things that we think will be long term really important for the organization and moving in that direction, right? Inconel 718 is something that people time and again come back to us for and try to understand. And that's often, that's what we have the most experience with historically. It's what we're trying to, anytime we want to do something new, it's more often than not our test bed for, hey, here's this new size we want to print. Here's this new layer thickness that we're looking at doing. Uh, it's, it's definitely our gold standard of what we're capable of working with. So we jump off from that material a lot of times, but we get requests, I get requests on a regular basis for this material, that material. And, you know, we're not turning our nose up at anything at this point. Uh, but given the bandwidth that we have, you know, it's an organization, it's all a certain size. We do have to pick and choose what we're working on. And definitely, I mean, I think, but if, if you're talking about markets you want to target, like even in the adjacent of what you're doing, like for somebody, if you're just looking at new space and launch and all this, I mean, things like satellites, that could grow so quickly, so fast, like, comms on the satellites, antenna, the radar, that kind of stuff, but also just like satellites themselves, you know, isn't it sometimes like maybe you're being drawn by the customer to making like, I don't know, we want to do 318, 316 and, and all this other, you're being drawn all sorts of material and all sorts of new features they want, but maybe it's simpler and you should just cater the satellite market and that would be enough. Certainly. And, and you know, at the end of the day, we're trying to get to the point where we're uh, very stable organization and we're going to do whatever we can to get to that point as quickly as possible. If people want us to print satellites day in, day out, I don't think we have any qualms with doing that at the moment. And, 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 you know, in terms of like, if you really want to radically change throughput, you know, wouldn't you need, you know, are you still thinking about like a chamber base or deep printer? Because you can also look at like, you know, exchanging the chambers or making more of a kind of, you know, conveyor belt-ish kind of approach in certain case. Are you really thinking of these radically different architectures or are you thinking more inside the box of type? Uh, I would say we're thinking within the box of laser powder bed fusion for the most part. Uh, so being able to make a reliable powder bed is essential for all of our processes, density, surface finish, right? And getting too far away from that, uh, you know, reproducible layer height, layer uniformity, uh, airflow above that, laser reach, laser angle, laser location, all of these things are, uh, you know, in, in some regards, I don't think there's nothing we wouldn't do. I don't think there's anything we wouldn't do, uh, but we, we understand how much harder it is to go away from certain aspects uh, than, than for others, right? I, going away from a laser energy source is, is extremely difficult to do. Uh, so we're not looking at, at things like that. So what are, we, what are we playing with? I would say generally, Laser powder bed fusion is kind of within the scope of what we're looking at doing going forward. But uh, yeah, beyond that, how we deliver powder, how we control powder, how we control the system, uh, all things that, uh, you know, without going into too much detail, we're looking at. What about yeah, like in the post-processing world to help reduce the time it takes after it comes out of the machine? Yeah, right. We have uh, new hardware projects in the works right now uh, where, with the idea to be able to reduce green to green time on some of these big tools. And, and a lot of that is just making uh, pretty obvious changes that you would make to uh, remove material from the tool and, and get a, get a new build module on. Right. So we're working on stuff like that uh, right now. 
You know, if you're really looking at this, I mean, you know, do you think that's going to make the market grow? You just make a better device all the time? You know, is, is that going to be like what your attempt is going to be? Or is it more on, you know, is it more on, you know, working with the consulting guys together to get like, you know, the customers onboarded quickly? Or, or is it more about like, you know, completely breakthrough kind of like applications and new things? How do you think we really move the needle on, on moving the market forward? Yeah, my take on moving the market forward is that I think a lot of people don't understand what's possible with AM. And uh, historically, it's very straightforward to request something be subtractively manufactured and understand what you're going to get. I don't think it's really well understood yet what you're going to get if you go to an AM contract manufacturer or if you buy a tool that does AM, right? What, it, what exactly is the outcome going to be? How reliable is it? How difficult is it to make a part? How what are all the processes? I think we're still there's a there's a major educational component that needs to happen to uh, to the global community at large around what additive is, what it's capable of. I, I know when I was joining Velo 3D and was starting to tell people about what the company did, there's a significant portion of the world who just doesn't understand that you can even print additively with metals, let alone what that looks like who the companies are, right? So I think there's a lot of just education there around what it is. There's also a gap between, right? I mean, this technology is super uh, young compared to the centuries old casting industry, the you know decades old CNC machining industry where tools just have to mature, get more reliable uh, and get more available. And that's one of the, you know, we've, we've targeted being able to be re- repeatable, reproducible from a machine to machine basis so that that starts to become the expectation of printing on a fellow machine. Okay. Hey, Zach, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. And you guys have asked some really fun questions. All right. And, uh, and Max, thank you very much for your time today. I hope you enjoyed it today. And then good luck with your, your Kickstarter as well. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Joyce. Thank you for hosting. <laughs> uh, anytime. And I hope you enjoyed listening to this. Uh, this is another episode of the 3D pod. You have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.